0: Welcome to another edition of the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron. When you hear the name Alexei Navalny, what comes to mind? Russia's opposition leader, perhaps? A prisoner of conscience? A racist demagogue? Or is he an anti-corruption crusader? Well, that depends on who you ask. But today, we wanted to talk all about Navalny. To help us in this endeavor, we invited by Jan-Mati Dolbaum, Morvan Lalouette, and Ben Noble authors of the new book, Navalny, Putin's nemesis, Russia's Future. As we'll discuss, that's a question mark at the end. Co-hosting this episode with me is Eilish Hart, editor of BMB Ukraine. Before we get going, if you like what you hear today, I'm including a link to purchase the book in the episode description. And that being said, let's talk about Navalny. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. So they say that three is company, five's a crowd, and today we have a crowd, so, instead of our usual intro, what I want to do here is uh, call on each of our guests and our trusty co hosts, and we'll introduce ourselves, and then get into the subject matter. So, Eilish, let's start with you.
1: Uh, hello. So, I'm Eilish Hart. I'm an associate scholar in FPRI's Eurasia program and the editor of the BMB Ukraine Brief. Um, and I'm also a new, the news editor for Medusa's English language edition. And I'm going to be co hosting this episode with Aaron.
0: Fantastic. Uh, let's turn it to Ben Noble. Hi, my name is Ben Noble.
2: I'm a lecturer in Russian politics at University College London, an associate fellow at Chatham House and a senior research fellow at the High School of Economics, Moscow.
3: All right. Next up, we have jan Mati Dolbaum. Hi, I'm Jan-Matthi Dolbaum. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the
0: University of Bremen in Germany. And lastly, but not least, we have Morvan Lalouette.
4: Uh, Hi, I'm Morvan. I'm a PhD candidate in comparative politics
0: at the University of Kent in Canterbury in the UK. So why we have all these guests today is that they recently wrote and published a book called Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. So we wanted to ask them all about it, uh, Putin's and Navalny's role in Russian politics. Um, So let's turn to our subject matter first and foremost. Why Navalny and why write this book when you did? And we'll start with Ben here.
2: So the reason why we picked Navalny is because at the beginning of this year, 2021, when Navalny returned, I as lecturer at UCL was bombarded with questions from people saying, who is this guy? Who is Alexei Navalny? Yes, there were the occasional profiles in publications, useful Profiles about who he was that maybe touched on his nationalism, maybe the darker pages of his history. But there's only so much that you can do to try and tell somebody's story in four or five thousand words. So what I did was I uh, asked around to see whether there was an English language book on Navalny. There didn't seem to be one. So I was encouraged by a colleague at UCL to think, if one doesn't exist, then maybe you should write it yourself. My initial reaction was, this is outrageous. I don't have time to do teaching research anyway. How am I going to write a book? But I knew that Jan and Morvan were doing excellent work, excellent research on Navalny. So I reached out to them firstly to ask whether they could think of a book. And they both said no. So I said, well, let's write one together. And then we found an agent, we found a publisher, and the rest is history. It really does seem like a blur now looking back. We wrote it very, very
0: quickly, and maybe we'll talk about the process a bit more, but that's the origin story for the book. Fantastic. Um, Eilish had a question, so I wanted to turn to you.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask about, in, in terms of, I mean, Why Navalny, you answered that um, perfectly, but what about the, the timing of the book in terms of when you wrote it, why you wrote it so quickly, and when it's coming out?
3: So um, when we wrote it, I think, um, was very much prompted by current events. So uh, when Ben reached out to Morvan and me, it was, I think, January 29th this year when uh, Navalny had just returned to Russia uh, from where he was recovering in in, uh, in Germany. And um, there was a whole lot of uh, news all about this and the protests that followed his um, his detention at the airport. And so that timing was pretty much dictated by current events. And as Ben has already said, there was just a need for a more nuanced explanation to a non-Russian audience in particular of who this person is and, and what, he, what he means in the Russian context. And then um, to, to answer your question why uh, why we were able to, to do that quickly is, is pretty much um, the fact that we had, as Ben has already said, worked on Navalny from different angles. And we will be talking about this um, in the in in the uh, course of this podcast, I think Navalny has been active on very different fronts, and so have we, right? So um, uh, that that kind of um, underlines also the the interesting aspects about Navalny shifting arenas that we are going to address, I think. And um, so I, for example, worked on Navalny's movement more than on the person um, or the politician, whereas Morvan has has built up expertise on Navalny's role in the um, in the Russian. Opposition, and so um, we, we came from this uh, from from different perspectives, and we had all pretty you know worked quite
0: a while on all on all of our topics, so that we could quickly synchron, uh, synthesize them into into this book. And I think what was particularly interesting about the book is the way you kind of cover the different, I guess you could say, different hats that Navalny has worn over the years. I know they interchange; they they're not wholly separable, um, but I think let's talk about Navalny, the figure in Russia, and his relationship with the Kremlin. I think what's particularly interesting over the course of this book is that it's not Navalny and the Kremlin kind of working separately. There's kind of an interplay between them um, over the, the years, and they've kind of grown alongside each other with the sort of feedback mechanism that Navalny does something, the Kremlin responds, uh, and the process continues, so on and so forth. So wanted to ask how have they evolved together, or I guess maybe even first, have they evolved together? Do you agree with that characterization? Um, and I guess the broader question there is, on a related note, we'll get there in a little bit. But what does Navalny actually want? So I'll turn to Morvan for this one.
4: Uh, yeah, I think it's a, a quite fair uh, characterization of, of what of the story we try to tell in the book, and uh, I. I I think I'll start from Navalny's end, and and maybe my co-authors will will chip in from the the Kremlin's end. Is so I think what what we found very interesting, what I found very interesting about Alexei Navalny is that he has from the beginning of his political career tried to adapt to shifting circumstances in uh, Russian politics, and he's not. Contrary to other opposition figures or opposition movements, uh, stayed constant with the same strategy, with repeating the same slogans, with with uh, catering to the same constituency. And along his career, and very early on his career, you can see that he tries to 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 find a way to put pressure on the system and to adapt to circumstances. And, and this is to take a simple example, Uh, when he devises, for example, his his very famous uh, slogan, United Russia to Putin's party, uh, party of crooks and thieves, it's it's really, um, he comes to this idea because he uh, starts from the idea that the party is really popular and Putin is really popular. Popular. And you need, you cannot repeat, as some did say at the time, that, oh, Putin rules because only uh, uh, because only of repression, but you have to attack his, his popularity. And I think that this is at least from Navalny's end, you, you you see and first we can talk about other topics that would take us up to today to smart voting. But you see that that constant will of uh, to to adapt from his side. And uh, yeah, maybe one of my
0: co-authors wants to take more from the Kremlin side. Yeah, Ben, I'll kick it to you for the Kremlin angle here. How has the Kremlin evolved or responded to this stress from Navalny, if you could call it that?
2: Yeah, uh, so we could focus on what's happened this year, and I think that gives a really good idea of the back and forth, what we might call the dance between Navalny and the Kremlin. Uh, and that relates uh, perhaps to a point that we didn't address actually about, you know, the origin story, right? Why we wrote it so quickly. We wanted it to be out before the State Duma elections. We wanted to provide a background on this figure who is clearly, at least until earlier this year, tried to present an electoral challenge to the authorities with smart voting. So this coordination, this tactical voting project to try and unite those people who don't want to vote for for United Russia. And so we can imagine that as, you know, one step from Navalny and his team, the Smart Voting Project. But then we can see a clear response from the Kremlin, quite a drastic nuclear option response, being to label his organization's extremist, and uh, more recently, things like Roskomnadzor, the communications regulator in Russia, blocking access to the Smart Voting website. So that's just a very sort of brief, sense of the back and forth between the two, but hopefully in the book, you get a sense of the broader back and forth. And we really wanted to challenge in the book, this idea that the Kremlin is this monolithic structure. It is actually capable of adapting quite nimbly to particular challenges, including some of the technological innovations that the Anti-Corruption Foundation were able to use in order to uncover corruption in the elite.
0: Uh, Jan Madi, you had a point here. Yeah, if there's if there's space to add one example,
3: perhaps of this um, learning process, and the general direction in which it in which it goes. In in the book, we have one juxtaposition of two very similar um, situations: one in 2017 and one in 20, uh, 2021. And in both instances, there was a um, uh, an, an effort of opposition forces, usually liberal opposition forces, to Gain a foothold in local uh, elections, and in 2017, that was still quite possible, and it was actually pretty successful in Moscow, um, when several liberal politicians went into the very lowest uh, rank of the of the parliamentary um, of the parliamentary system, and uh, when they tried to do the same thing with a very similar coalition in 2021, that um, uh, that uh, was was completely blocked and and, and repressed from the outset. And so we ask in the book, what happened in between? And something that happened in between is clearly Navalny and his strategies to use all the available little spaces that were left in the system, um, and and the regime answering by closing these down one by one.
1: Just to add in kind of a thir- the third um, player, if you will, uh, to, to the question, because we asked, you know, about this uh, symbiosis between the Kremlin, the Kremlin and Navalny. Um, how about Navalny's supporters? Obviously, like support for Navalny has evolved as evolved as well over the years. So, could you talk a bit about that?
0: Jan yeah, Mari, go for it.
3: Sure. Um, obviously, Navalny, as, as um, uh, the others have already said, has been trying to gather support from from quite different um, electorates or different uh, groups of people in the in the population, and he's been trying to exploit um, present uh, grievances. And these grievances have been changing over the years, and so his support and his supporter base might also have been changing while he was adapting to, to these changes. right? And um, one of those very important changes was his turn towards um, left wing or center left policies demands to increase the welfare state and especially to increase the minimum wage and to invest more in education and health. And these sort of demands that usually you wouldn't hear from a liberal. Navalny is still considered a liberal in broad terms, but this is something that he's clearly diverging from, uh, you know, from his, uh, his colleagues in the liberal opposition. And the support has been trailing these attempts. As we can see in, for example, in the, in the survey that we conducted um, in 2018 among his social media supporters. So these are people who are devoted to Navalny even publicly, you know, they, they subscribe to his social media uh, groups and they were, you know, pretty, pretty centre left on these issues too. Um, so they were liberal in, ter- in other questions, and you know, in terms of, um, for example, uh, property. Should it belong? You know, should uh, the, inv- the, the uh, economy be controlled by the state or by, by private individuals? They were very liberal in that regard, but they were pretty um, state, you know, uh, state-centered when it came to Navalny's uh, positions on the welfare state, for example. So here we see that his support has been, has been trailing his, uh, his demands.
0: So I wanted to kind of confront you guys with the sentiment I've heard uh, from a lot of Russian friends, I know kind of professional class, who around the time uh, of the protest against Medvedev, this was uh, Navalny's uh, very, very uh, widely watched video, I guess you could call it, he's not demon to you, um, but about alleging corruption allegations, um, fancy sneakers, kind of duck residences, among other excesses. The sentiments that I heard from a lot of people I know in Russia who even participated in protests was that we don't particularly care about Navalny. I don't particularly like Navalny. Uh, I wonder who's paying him, like, what's his angle here? But I support what he's saying about the issue. So uh, I'll kick this to you, Morvan, if you could talk a little bit about how Navalny kind of plays in with the broader Russian electorate, not his core supporters. On social media, has he made inroads? Um, are Russians generally um, liable or susceptible to the messaging that Navalny is putting out?
4: There's there's different ways to answer that question. I think that uh, of course the the it's uh, it's not possible to say today that that Navalny enjoys some kind of majority support in Russian society. This is plainly wrong. Uh what polls do show is that he's managed to reach a level of approval that you can consider decent. This this is uh this was around 20% of the Russian population who approved the his activities, not people who would be ready to vote for him, but who nonetheless approve of his activities. Um so this is a support that I think could be considered decent given the, the very uh repressive environment, the very tough environment in which Navalny has made his career and uh, so this this would be uh, two important points and um, now uh, I think and this is also a, a second point that we could make is that uh, and a point that we do make in the book is that uh, we do find that many people have a pretty instrumental relationship to R- Navalny which is that they might not support all of his ideas his ideas by the way have been pretty have been have shifted quite a lot during his already long career and and we find that that many people support him as a kind of tool to to, to change a political situation without uh agreeing with him on on special points of his program and uh yeah so this, this is what i would say maybe some, someone wants to
0: yeah ben i was gonna
2: add to that that i think at the beginning of this year the protests that happened in support of Navalny after he was detained at border control in January. Uh, We got a sense from those protests and the reporting at the time that there were people turning up who said, I don't agree with Navalny personally. I don't agree with what he said in the past, it's racist but that he's the best positioned person to challenge the current regime. And using that as a jumping off point in the book, we introduced this idea of stage one and stage two, that stage one for Navalny and his team is to topple the Putin government. And stage two is when quote unquote, normal politics can happen, when Navalny can be a politician in a liberal multi-party democracy, even though at the moment, especially uh, given what's happened since Navalny's been in prison, that seems even more in the distant future than it might have been when we wrote the book so thinking of those two stages we can imagine those people that you mentioned Aaron your acquaintances in Russia your friends um, they're on board with stage one when it comes to stage two they might be vehement critics of Navalny and uh, really take him to cast for his uh, take him to task for his racism but I suppose it underscores a broader point Uh, uh, something that we try to achieve in the book, that this isn't a traditional biography of Navalny, not only because he's still alive and he's 45, it's definitely not going to be the definitive account of who he is, but we wanted to place him in the context of his team and his movement, as well as Russian society more broadly. And uh, I think that's one of the strengths of the book. We draw on Jan's research in the regions when he spoke to activists between 2017 all the way through to this year, which provides even richer detail that fleshes out that sense that we got from the process earlier this year about the people who are willing to support him even if they don't agree with him entirely
0: we'll be right back after this short break
5: bnb russia is meant for anyone who wants to understand what is going on in the world of politics and economics in one of the world's key emerging markets or perhaps just wants to peek into the broader post-soviet space we're a team dedicated to making Russia and Eurasia more accessible, both to rising area experts and specialists, but also to those who don't know what Kfas is, have no strong opinions about dill, and don't have any feelings about Moscow's macroeconomic policies. We're here to keep you ahead of the curve and spot what most in English language media aren't talking about. The BNB Russia Project is led by FBI fellow and BNB editor-in-chief Stephanie Petrella, while our latest edition, BNB Ukraine, is led by FPR Associate Scholar Eilish Hart. To receive the latest on Russia and Ukraine news, be sure to sign up for BMB Russia at www.fpri.org/slash subscribe. And now back to the discussion.
0: So, when Eilish and I were very excitedly preparing for this podcast episode yesterday, one of the things we uh, chatted about a little bit was you talk about Navalny's role in society. And I think it would behoove us to talk a little bit about the role of the non-systemic opposition, A, as a whole in, in Russian society, but also also Navalny's relationship with it. And a lot of Western media he's called, and I've called him this myself, the leader of the opposition. So I wanted to address that kind of language. So let's turn to Morvan on this one first.
4: Of course, the 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 label leader of opposition of the of the opposition is quite a contested one, and and it is not a formal position for which there are elections or or polls or. or I think that we all agree that that Navalny is way above his competitors in the non-systemic uh, opposition, whatever metrics you use, and this is. So what what makes him an interesting figure today is that in terms of name recognition in terms of popularity in terms of Organization he has clearly surpassed uh, uh, his competitors and um, Now, of course, he's a very divisive very controversial uh, Person many as even in the non-systemic liberal opposition do not agree with him Consider that he is a nationalist that he has authoritarian tendencies that would even be dangerous for potential Russian democracy. Uh, So, so of course, he's not an uncontested leader, but I think that taking a bit of distance from, from, uh, from the very competitive world of the non-systemic opposition, it's, I think it's impossible to deny him that, that
0: role of being above his competitors. Uh, one thing I wanted to Uh, ask about, uh, as it relates to this topic, you talk about his kind of the nationalist views that he's espoused over the years. And again, in preparing for this episode, Eilish raised a really great question about how Navalny's nationalism compares to Putin's nationalism. I mean, on the same same token, Putin did go to great lengths to play up Crimea, um, other efforts to quote unquote, make Russia great again. Um so let's turn it to Jan Mati here. I wanted to to ask your take on that. Are they overlapping? Are they diametrically opposed? How what's the interplay? So when Navalny first ventured into nationalism, that was clearly
3: a gesture against against Putin, against what what the uh, Putin's policy was in uh, in terms of immigration first and foremost. Because this was a time when uh, immigration Ah uh, to to Russia was pretty high and um, there was also a lot of uh, discontent with that in the population. Navalny was hoping um, to uh, to to gain from this in some way and to connect his um, his plan to you know subvert the authoritarian system in Russia um, to this topic. this plan to subvert the authoritarian system into initialize uh, the beginning of a parliamentary democracy that has been actually pretty consistent despite every, everything else that has changed in the line rhetoric and his demands right um, but he there was a time when when uh, his nationalism was sort of he, he probably thought this nationalism was a vehicle to achieve that and that was directed against putin's immigration policy and putin's immigration policy obviously is based on uh, the soviet heritage because uh, the immigration wasn't from anywhere it was uh, specifically from former Soviet countries in Central Asia, uh, first and foremost. And um, so here we have the clear difference between Putin's nationalism and Navalny's one. Um, Putin has always stressed that there is um, a Soviet heritage that has to be sort of upheld and that that um, translates into special relationships with countries uh, surrounding Russia, and that includes immigration from there. And that also uh, includes um, Russia's multinational character. And also that is something that Navalny has been contesting in the past when he wrote about um uh, his his Narod movement meaning meaning people that was supposed to you know to cater to to ethnic Russians. Um although you know he has never been of the hard nationalist um far-right kind that we also find in Russia that uh, you know condoned violence against immigrants or against non-ethnic Russians. Um, but here you see the clear difference and that, that really um, also translates into the period uh, when when uh, of the annexation of Crimea when Putin was evidently becoming more nationalist but still keeping the you know the multi ethnic character as as a as a, as a um, characterization of of his nationalism. Uh,
1: just to add to that since I'm uh, like you said nationalism is you know kind of a vehicle for Navalny's broader program that hasn't necessarily served him well and I think the other um tool that we haven't really touched on that has been you know much more successful is his anti-corruption work and his anti-corruption activism um so could you talk a bit about how his this type of, um, this type of activism has served his political ends? Uh,
2: So the, uh, it's a really great question about the role of anti-corruption in Navalny's politics, because now when we think about Navalny, I think most people would, yes, he's a politician, he's very often has been, before he was imprisoned, of course, been at the head of process. but he originally came to the fore as an anti-corruption protester, and is associated with the Anti-Corruption Foundation, which of course has now been dissolved. But when writing the book, I think one thing that I started to appreciate more than I had previously was the extent to which sort of he stumbled into this. He appeared to stumble into it. That at the end of the 1990s, he wanted to make it rich as a businessman. He trained as a lawyer, he practiced as a lawyer, and he started buying shares. Uh, As a member of the middle class, he was being getting involved in this new market capitalist system. And by buying these shares, he started encountering lots of questions that he couldn't get answers to, like where are the profits going? who owns the rest of the, the, uh, the, the or the bulk of the shares in this particular company that I'm a minority shareholder in and he starts asking awkward questions and blogs about it and I think he slowly over time learns given the growing following of his blogs and the interest in his investigations that this is giving him a platform. He was earlier a, a politician in a sense, he was active in yabloka and clashed with uh, Grigory yablinsky uh, and so was slightly frustrated in his political career so I suppose that gives another sense in which he he shifts between these different modes of anti-corruption, activist, politician and protester. But once he realizes that the anti-corruption message can be a good platform for politics, he really takes off. And I think it's it's straightforward to understand why. It's tricky to think of somebody who would be for corruption as in who would use that as the source, the basis of their political ideological um, programme. So it can unite people on the left wing, on the right wing, in the centre, and I think that is the core reason why Navalny seized upon the anti-corruption message and kept it going all the way through and why the anti-corruption foundation became such an integral part of his organisation.
0: So we just started talking about corruption, and uh, one of the words that gets thrown around in Russian or rather Western press uh, all the time is the K word for kleptocracy. So Eilish, I wanted to turn this over to you to ask some questions about corruption in Russian society and politics. So what what can we talk about as Navalny is concerned here?
1: Um, yeah, I think that was something I wanted to ask you to elaborate on in the book, because you do sort of make the argument that calling Russia a kleptocracy is almost too simple in terms of how the, the system actually works. So could you, you know, talk a little bit about that? And then, or how Navalny's movement has tried to take advantage of sort of the existing legal mechanisms to combat corruption in Russia, because he's not really that radical, so to speak, in his strategies
3: yeah, Mati, if you could perhaps I can start and then my colleagues can jump in and uh, on the question about uh, Russia being a kleptocracy we, we are conscious that that this is um, we are challenging a, a little bit of, of established discourse on this because we are we are um, very explicit in saying Russia is not a kleptocracy in the sense that this is a, a power system that is organized to steal money and to funnel it to the elites and that is Incidentally, what Navalny has been claiming all the time, obviously, right? And so we are also not just contradicting some of our colleagues, but also Navalny himself. Um, what we say instead is that there are still many people in the system um, that think Putin is the right person in the right time, at the right place, to deliver things to the Russian people and to strengthen the Russian state. And, um, and, and Putin himself is among those people, I, I believe. So um, this this corruption that exists in the system is to a large degree, I think has a function rather than being the end goal. And the function is to stabilize the current regime and to protect it from whatever challenges that are being brought against it in order to be able to, to, to perform all of all of these all of these functions that they think they are performing. Right? So in that in that reading, corruption is a tool rather than the goal or the raison d'etre of the system. And of course, because it is a very important tool, it's, you know, it attracts people who are in the game only for the money, right? That That is clear, but still it is as not a top level thing, but the second level thing, an instrument. You
0: know. Mervan, if you'd like to weigh in.
4: Uh, perhaps I can weigh in on on the other part of, of uh, Yves questions and um, it's true and it, it has also been something quite defining in in Navalny's career and and endeavours as an anti anti corruption fighter that Navalny has always tried to exploit the possibilities that the Russian state offers to him, and that was uh, when he started his career. That was uh, judicial litigation. That was also something uh, that. Uh, took uh, great importance during the Medvedev's first term, which is open government, and uh, the fact that, for example, uh, state tenders are have to be published online, which makes the whole process of researching uh, possible, possible bribery or, or corruption much more easy, and, and, and it's very it's something that has uh, been clearly defining in the, in the way he has approached uh, corruption and it's uh, now of course uh, Navalny from the start was quite pessimistic as to the 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 possibility for him to win against the state it it, it did happen that he won against public body it was quite rare but it was also always kind of the first the first uh, uh, steps in fighting corruption and then uh, as it were, the fact that you can't win against the state reinforces the message that uh, the legislation is not applied, that uh, there is no rule of law in Russia, that judges are not independent, so that you can't you can't use the system to fight corruption because it is so ingrained in the system,
0: and and which yeah gives another argument to to change it uh, more deeply. So. So let's turn to our final topic. And I'm going to hand this to Eilish to to lead this part of the discussion. Kind of the broad header in our notes here is, is Navalny Russia's future? So with that very, very easy, simple to break down matter, Eilish, <laughs> what? Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we took that obviously from, from the title of the book. Um, but I think the More specific question is, you know, is Navalny Russia's future if he's sitting in jail for the foreseeable future? So, where does Navalny's imprisonment leave, you know, his team? Where does it leave his supporters?
2: I think. That's, of course, a great question. We include it in the subtitle of the book. And it's, I suppose, a technical difficulty on podcasts. But, you know, how do we make it clear that there's a question mark after the future? It's Putin's <laughs> nemesis, Russia's future question mark. And the question mark is absolutely crucial because we are not claiming in the book that Navalny is uh, Russia's future. We stay largely on the fence on that point, and some people might be frustrated, but really the point we're trying to make is that Navalny himself has been calling for a system in which it's up to the Russian people to decide about whether he's going to be their future, rather than it depending on when he's released from prison. That being said, we can look at polling on uh, Russians' attitudes, generally their preferences, uh, but also their attitudes towards Navalny. And earlier, Morvan mentioned that Navalny's approval ratings, according to Lavada, are 20%. That figure relates to when he returned earlier this year. Now, the last polling data that I've seen, it's down to 14%. And so the question then becomes, is that a function of the fact that now he's in prison, he's slipped off the radar, and uh, so people uh, are less uh, spend less time thinking thinking about him? Is it that they've lost hope in him because he is uh, uh, in prison? You know, I I think that's the way that the conversation should go. But it seems highly unlikely at the moment that he would be the future. And I suppose also the question of whether he would be the future relates to the stage one and stage two that, you know, Navalny might be the best placed person to win stage one, but whether he is the future for stage two, whether, for example, he would be the president of Russia, I think we're on safer ground saying it would be very tricky for Navalny with his current platform to win uh, a presidential race. Of course, it would depend on who he was up against. Of course, it would depend on the extent to which his own positions would change in that stage two world. It could be that he rips up his current program or his program that we saw in the 2018 presidential election, even though, of course, he was barred from actually running in the end, but he might change his positions entirely. But let me now hand over to Jan.
3: Yeah, I wanted to add something on um, on the broader question if Navalny is going to be Russia's future. And in one sense, he probably will be. And that um, does not concern his person or even his his movement, but rather the Um, the techniques that he's been developing and that he's been innovative, very innovative with in Russian politics. And that includes, for one thing, something that we don't see just in Russia, but everywhere in the world is something that uh, infotainment is becoming politically very important. Um, you know, YouTube videos, having a huge influence on public opinion. And um, that is what Navalny has been professionalizing in for the past 10 years. He has been giving an interview recently, just two years ago, saying that he didn't want to become a YouTuber. He had to because he had no other chance to uh, to appear in politics. And he, he professionalized that. And that is going to be in, influential, whether it's going to be Navalny and his people or other people using that. He also, um, you know, modern political movements have been obviously also been, been driven by by Navalny and his associates in a way that is now being picked up by other people in Russia. You know, um, opening uh, offices across the country is probably something that we won't see from somebody who's associated with Navalny, but maybe from other people who perhaps find it easier to to um, negotiate uh, their place in the system, et cetera, et cetera. Operating with, um, with volunteers and, and all of that sort of thing that has been pioneered by Navalny that will be used in the future, whether that's under Navalny brand or not, most likely not.
0: Ravon,
4: over to you. Uh, yes, I wanted to add something on that that note about uh, uh, is Navalny Russia's future, and it's something uh, that uh, he recently said in that uh, New York Times interview, which I think is a, a very interesting quote, says that whether he he is there or not, there is still that issue in russian politics that you have a segment of the population that is not represented in the political system in russia today these are broadly speaking that's not only says it's about 30% of the population that might be a slight exaggeration and that's broadly speaking, people, Western oriented people, people who might want the system to be more democratic, more organized along Western lines. And it is true that when you look at the Russian political system, these people do not have a political representation. And whether or not Navalny ends up representing these people, which he has tried to do alongside representing broader segments of Russian society, that's issue. Uh, about the broader structure of Russian power remains and remains an open question. And these people are not going anywhere. I think, of course, you, you, we are already seeing some some emigration in Russia today, but you will still have uh, some form of quote-unquote middle class in uh, Russia that looks towards the West. Maybe that's not the majority problem. It's not the majority of the Russian people. But what is going to happen with these people? Or in, in, in the future in Russian politics? is a larger question.
0: Again, the title ends with a question mark. I think that is a great note to finish on. So I want to thank Eilish and all of our guests today for a great conversation. Uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks. thanks, Aaron. Thanks again to Eilish, our guests, and to you, listener, for joining. Don't forget there is a link to purchase the book in this episode's description. Be sure to follow BMB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia and Eurasia is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. That's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and others, drop by fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.